The Witching Hour with Aaron Mazza is a Mind Garden Media podcast in association with Screw You Todd Productions. My name is Aaron Mazza, and this is The Witching Hour. Hey everyone, it's Aaron. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to my last episode with the wonderful Vince. And I look forward to having them on future episodes as we have meaningful conversations and interview a few people here and there. I really hope you enjoy this episode with the wonderful Ben Stimson. And if you need anything, as always, you know where to find me. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, it's a little windy outside, so we can't decide if it's winter or spring down here in St. Louis, but I'm glad I put some extra bobby pins in my hat so it didn't blow away. How's the weather up there in Canada? Well, it's it was really nice. We were at 27 degrees Celsius, so I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, like 80, something like that, last weekend, and then it's back down to seven again, so... It's kind of weird. Where I'm at, I'm up near one of the Great Lakes, so I, it's, it's kind of the lower part of Canada, but it's not great. It's not fun. Tell us about yourself. Who is Ben in a nutshell? I'll even let you pick the nut. Chestnut, yeah. hazelnut, whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, so that's been the story of my life, trying to figure that out. So I am in a blurb. I am a queer, non-binary, pagan witch person. I'm now an author. My book's coming out through Llewellyn in September. And professionally, I'm a therapist slash counselor. And I work a lot with individuals like Jungian, transpersonal, and narrative therapies. Apart from that, I am a cat dad. I'm 36 years old. It's starting to sound like a dating profile here. So I'm going to like just end that. So I'm just a lot of things. I I don't even know what to say. (laughs) As far as the dating profile goes, hey, people, they're single. They're available. They're adorable. So if you're in their neck of the woods, snatch them up. <laughs> well, and they're going to have to be quick because they're moving to the UK next year. So it's going to be. A oh, no. Take us all with you, please. <laughs> oh. So how did you find the path of the craft or whatever you choose to call it? How did you find the path of magic? Feel free to just elaborate on this as little or as much as you want, because I'm certainly interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So I, that's kind of tied into the reason why I'm in Canada. So I came over to Canada when I was eight and a half years old. My parents came over here in the mid 90s because they really didn't have a lot going for them in the UK. There was a lot like they, they'd reached the kind of the, the, the top of their profession in the pub industry over there. And so they were looking for something new. They were entrepreneurs. They were looking for something new. So they came over to Canada. And that's kind of when my life changed completely. So I came over. I was old enough to remember back home. But I wasn't old enough to make a decision to stay. And my older sister, who was 21 at the time, there's a big difference between us both. She stayed. And she continued her life over there. But I didn't get that choice. So... How I originally came and founded paganism was around the mid, mid to like early 2000s. I was given an assignment in school to like kind of look into my roots. And at that point, I had no idea who I was like, who 13, 14, who knows who they are, right? I knew that I was gay. I was out, I wasn't out of the closet yet, but I was in a little tiny town of about 8,000 people. 
and and probably similar to a lot of little tiny towns down in the states there where you are. There were like 18 churches, none of them wanted me, or at least that's what I thought. And so I started looking into my English heritage, my British heritage, and there was very little I could get because it was just around the same time the internet was starting to become a big thing in most people's homes. It's kind of like, you know, if you had a computer in your home, it was a big thing, you know. So I saw the movie Mists of Avalon for the first time. And I really, really connected with that because King Arthur was a story that I'd grown up with. It was showing a spirituality that I could really get behind, at least when I was 14, 15, right? And it was very connected with, you know, back home. And so I, I saw this image of this loving mother goddess. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. So I started to look into that a little more because I had no idea what you would even call that. And at around the same time, we were doing Greek mythology and English class. So that was really my framework, my reference of gods other than Jesus Christ, right? And I didn't really come from a, a really strongly religious background. My parents are like nominal Anglican, but it's very like typical, like little Englander Anglicanism where, you know, you go to church maybe three times a year and that's for christenings, for deaths or for Christmas, you know. So I started heavily looking into it. And at that point, we had the internet in our home. And so I started to connect with other witches and pagans on Witchfox. I don't know if you've heard of it. Some of the younger audience may not have any idea what that was, but Witchfox was really the only pagan kind of website back then, except for like Pagan Space, which I was also on as well. So I connected with other young gay pagans, mostly in Toronto area, and that's how I discovered it. And then that's where I kind of came in, and now I'm like a queer witch pagan who does unspeakable things in unspeakable places. Sounds like a good time to me. But mm. anywho... <laughs> what was the very first book? Because we all remember our first book mm -hmm. whenever it comes to like witchcraft and things like that. Like mine, for example, was Wicca for the Solitary Practitioner mm -hmm. by Scott mm -hmm. Cunningham. Yeah, that's a very, very common, popular book. Ironically, that wasn't my first book, funnily enough. So I originally started looking into this because of a folklore book. And I had this beautiful, it was an encyclopedia of spirits and fairies and goblins and all these. I started heavily looking into fairies originally first before I kind of found The Mists of Avalon. So I would say The Mists of Avalon was my first book. But then my second actual pagan book was The Spiral Dance by Starhawk. And it was kind of like a weird kind of thing because I found it in a book sale at my local library. And it was the only, I guess the, the, the people in the library had no idea what it was. And I guess then they were like actively taking out any witchcraft books back then. So that one got through. So yeah, The Spiral Dance by, Spiral, uh, by Starhawk was my first one. And uh, of course, I mean, like 15-year-old reading Starhawk, I didn't understand most of it, but I knew that it was something to do with the goddess and I was really interested in the goddess, right? So, yeah. I actually have a copy of the book of, uh, I have like the 15th or anniversary of Starhawk. Yeah the uh, spiral dance here but i have yet to crack it open don't take away my witch card so you mentioned that you're a therapist and you mm -hmm. i believe how does that intersect with your practice elaborate on that how does that intertwine with your practice if you care to share if you care no, to absolutely no no it's actually a cornerstone of my practice it's one of the reasons actually i got into into working psychotherapy so in Canada, uh, because of scope of practice and of regulations, means like I can't call myself a psychotherapist, but my training is in psychotherapy. 
And we originally recently retrained. So originally I was actually training in social work. And about 13 years ago, I dropped out of my social work program because I had a lot of stuff come up in my own life. There was a lot of things happening for me. And so a few years later, I was working, living at home with my parents. And go figure, I'm back living with my parents again. (laughs) But I started to do vending at Psychic Ferris because I had a lot of money and I wasted it all on buying stuff from like Azure Green and Cheops International, all these places. And I started going and vending at Psychic Ferris and like conventions and things. And I met the bookseller next to me who introduced herself. She was this tall, beautiful, like long, red-haired woman. She was amazing. And well, she is amazing. She was telling me about her center. So it's a spiritual center down in a place called Kitchener, where I, I just was living for the past couple of years. And she said, oh, you know, I teach these courses. So I, I got this weird feeling, W-Y-R-D, a weird feeling at that point. It was 2015. I was kind of just coming back into myself, really getting out into the world again, reconnecting with my practice. And she said, oh, I, I offer these courses. And I got a weird feeling that, you know, these courses, they were self-development courses. There were 10 of them all together, and they were in things like spiritual development, kind of self-help work, you know, all stuff I would recognize now as psychotherapy. But back then, it looked to me like, you know, spirituality development, right? So I decided, okay, well, I'm going to start doing these courses. So I commuted an hour and a half to the place. And it turned out that her center was a satellite campus of a small psychotherapy program in Toronto. So after a few years of, of kind of working my way through those courses, I was like, you know, this, I think, would really fit with all the social work program or education that I had been doing. Because one of the things with social work that I was really dreading finishing and getting out in the field was Band-Aid solutions. Social work, at least in Canada, the way I was being trained was to throw us into systems that were not going to be able to change. I would not be able to work really well with my clients to help them make a difference in their lives because they were dealing with massive systems that were not going to change. So psychotherapy, as was shown to me, can be linked directly with spirituality. I thought, you know, this will be a good path for me. So I started training in spiritual psychotherapy particularly. So how it intersects with my paganism then is I'm a member of all sorts of different groups. At that time, I was working with a spiritual group that was (laughs) non-denominational. I don't even know if I can use that word. Non-sectarian, non-like, there were all sorts of different groups. (laughs) And they were working with Joseph Campbell's monomyth. So it was, they were crafting pagan mysteries, mystery plays. And each of the ritual, each of the festivals, it was a a festival group, basically. Every time the, the group met, which was twice a year, we would enact a large mystery play connected to some sort of mythical, mythical cycle. And it was all connected to Joseph Campbell's monomyth. So when I first went there because I was vending, they chose me to be one of the primary actors to take on in this ritual at all. And this was the first time I had ever worked with a huge pagan group before. It was 150 people. And it was amazing. And like the very first time I had been in such a large group gathering. And it turns out it was only half an hour away from where I was living at the time. I was like, all of these pieces, like all of these pieces were all like revolving around me. They wouldn't have necessarily met. I wouldn't have met Tiffany or tribal her food group I was with if I hadn't started to vend and kind of get myself out there and so the two when worked in tandem and so a lot of my psychotherapy work is narrative work 
And so I use a lot of, and I also work a lot with pagans and queer people. And so a lot of the narrative work I work with is looking at figures like gods, superheroes, a person's own mythology. And that has really resonated with my paganism. The idea of magic too, magic as a form of empowerment. So really the two work very well together. Now, that being said, I, I should say I do try to separate them as well because, you know, magic is magic and experience is experience. It's wonderful to be experiencing something without psychoanalyzing it. Right? So, so the two work well together, but they also work very well separately for me. Yeah, I hope that answers the question. I, I feel like it, it does answer the questions, but I am ever the interviewer. <laughs> It's Same just, here. it kind of makes me want to ask the question, like, how do you define magic for yourself? This is also a question I ask most of my guests, and there's no incorrect way to answer this. And to take it one step further, what do you believe the role of the witch is in modern society, specifically where you are now? Okay. I'll tackle the magic question first. So to me, magic is the ability to link into overlay spiritual overlays on our own basic plane of existence in order to affect change in that plane of existence. To me, magic is really being able to tweak the little connectors that connect everything. And so in, in so doing, you're using a different set of tools that the rational brain might not recognize, but you're really tying into relationships. And sometimes those relationships are influenced by ritual. Sometimes those are tweaked by relationship. And sometimes those are also tweaked by understanding our own rules. So one of the ways that I tend to see the universe is through the concept of weird. Weird is the Norse Anglo-Saxon understanding of the, of the web of life. Everything is connected and everything is constantly co-creating with everything else. So I actually, to kind of demonstrate that and remind myself of that, I don't know if you can see that there, but I have that tattoo. This is the, the weird bind room. And I place that right where I can see it to remind myself of that because I have had some freaky experiences with this over the years. And so that's how I, I tend to see magic. And so magic can be active. It can be passive. Sometimes magic is knowing when to get out of the way when big things are happening. Sometimes magic is applying to those figures, gods, spirits, who can make those changes on your behalf. And sometimes magic, and often magic is defined as you directly learning how to influence you know, reality in those ways. So that's how I tend to see magic. I like that answer. It just kind of like whenever you're talking about like the gods, it kind of makes you want to makes you want to ask questions about the gods. Like, do you see the gods? as anthropomorphized forces of nature or do you see them as like sentient beings and to me like the answer is both and it's just so interesting going back to what you were talking about like using plays to communicate like mysteries and stuff it makes me think of like how they greet i think it was the greeks who used to use the illusion mysteries used to use a play for that absolutely absolutely well well I, and if you look at all world traditions story and narrative come in and sacred story particularly, is not just a retelling of events. It's bringing people into the story. And so magic is about 
like breaking the fourth wall and entering into story, which is essentially a paracosm. It's a world within a world, right? Which is the same as ritual. When we create ritual space, we're creating a microcosm of the entire universe. That's how I see it. Anyway. And so in so doing then, it's that hermetic idea of as above, so below, as within, so without. Now, people can get very wooey with that, and I don't want to like put people down by that, but people can take that to a very psychological and kind of sanitized place. But I think that when you enter into ritual space, you are literally entering into a, a microcosm. And so things that go on in ritual space have greater implications outside, in the same way that greater things have implications on the micro, right? So, and I think to come back to your second question, then I think if I remember the second question, that's how I, I essentially see the, the role of magic users and practitioners in today's society, and especially in, in North America here, is understanding that on the micro, we can affect a lot of change. But if enough of us are doing that, then bigger change will happen. But also to understand that we can also affect on a greater level things in the micro. And I think a lot of people don't believe that they can do that. And so then their power just disappears. You're just going through the motions. So I think there's a lot of intention needing to be there. And also understanding and being responsible for that. When people who, and I've seen it, when people understand that power for themselves, they then become a lot more responsible. And in that responsibility, they tend not to do things because they don't need to do things. If that makes sense. That actually does make perfect sense. I want to ask you about Ancestral Whispers. First and foremost, I want to ask, is this your first book that you're it coming is, with? It is my very first book, and I'm so excited. I, it's kind of a weird thing, though, I'll be honest with you, Aaron, because I've been talking to a lot of other authors about this. I started working on this book in January of 2021. So it's almost, well, it is two and a half years since I started it. I'm so ready for it to just be out because it's almost like that child that just will not move out. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it. I really love it. But I was working on my second book. I can't talk much about that right now, but I'm, I was working on a pitch for my second book and I'm already ready to get into the, you know, other things. But Ancestral Whispers is my very first book and it came at a time where I, like all of us were in a place of, of lockdown a lot of change and it came as a culmination of a lot of ancestral work over the span of about four years previously so there's a lot of a lot of elements within it's a very personal book for me and i tell that story many times throughout the book of kind of the genesis of it how it came, really came on the back of a lot of work i'd been doing with my psychotherapy training and tribal hearth also, at the time, around the same time as I was doing the tribal health work and my psychotherapy training, I also joined the Order of Bards, Lovites, and Druids in the UK. And I was also involved with a, uh, an Ile of Lukumi, Santeria, up here in Canada. And it was amazing to have so many of those spiritual traditions kind of all focused, and they all focused on the ancestors. So this book really comes from a lot of personal work with the ancestors. And so I'm really excited to, to put it out there. So what would you like to know about it? Because I could just go blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just excited that it's coming out. And whenever it does come out, I'm going to get my hands on a copy because I'm a very bookish person. And I just like the feeling of a physical copy of the mm -hmm. book <laughs> in my hot little hands. So <laughs> 
what made you want to put this between two covers? What, what, what is your vision for it? Absolutely. So, well, so the book is essentially a, it's called a guide, but really it's a very long therapy session. So I have not written this book as me telling you how to do ancestral veneration. What this book really came out of is I was looking around and I didn't see many good books for individuals who are not part of traditions that have ancestral veneration as part of of those traditions. I was looking around, there's a lot of books, well, there's a handful of books I really need to say. There's probably about maybe less than 15, really, on the market. If we were to look at North American, like Western world, there's maybe only about 15 books in the past 20 years on ancestral veneration that aren't specifically tied to like hoodoo, to like Norse paganism, to very specific traditions, right? And so I saw that there was a need that, well, there was a need. We were in the middle of lockdowns, death was everywhere, people were very focused on ancestor work, and there was a need. And I think there was a need for books that were not going to try and give you a tradition to follow, because so many people I've seen anyways, will take up traditions uh, that they don't belong to. And it won't work for them. And then they'll move on to the next tradition, move on to the next tradition, move on to the next tradition. What I think that says is that there's a genuine want and seeking of connection, but there's no real way of understanding how to connect, right? So the book is written more as a, this is what all these other traditions around the world are doing. How do you relate to this content? So I go through all sorts of different parts. The the book is in two parts. The first part is conceptualizing the ancestors, conceptualizing the dead, conceptualizing kind of how even cosmos works. And then the question always comes back to the reader. So where do you fit into all this? How do you relate to this content? So it's very non-denominational. It's not specific to any one tradition. And it forces the reader, at least I hope that it forces the reader to ask themselves really good questions about how they relate to their ancestors, how their ancestors relate to them, how they even see the ancestors, and how then relationship can be built off of that underlying worldview, right? The second part is then focused on ritual practice because we can, you know, philosophize and theorize and, you know, talk in our armchairs about all of these concepts until the cows come home. But if we're not actually putting that into practice, then what's the use? At least to me, what's the use, right? So I break down all of the various parts of the living tradition, everything from use of sacred space, building altars, prayer, using magic, going on pilgrimage. And it's all based around your relationship with your ancestors then. Another key part of the book is even to expand the idea of ancestor. A lot of people in the West, we tend to view ancestor as direct lineage of blood, basically. So then that leaves out queer people who don't necessarily have maybe good relationships with their recent blood ancestors, individuals who are part of lineages that are not blood related, chosen family, affinity, all of these things. So I expand that idea with examples. So I always use examples from around the world of how all of this looks on the ground in spiritual traditions in other parts of the world. And I beg the question, then how do you see ancestors? What do you believe about them? Do you believe that, you know, for example, a deity could be an ancestor for you? Do you believe that a spirit could be an ancestor? You know, a lot of European noble families and a lot of like other communities in Europe 
tend to look back to spirits as figurative or metaphorical ancestors. So then how does that relationship with those figurative metaphorical ancestors connect with you? How does it impact yourself and how you show up in the world? And ultimately, how the whole book ends with the idea of legacy. How does your relationship with these ancestors, however way you want to see them, then prepare you to be an ancestor in waiting? And what world are you going to leave for the people in the future? So that's kind of a basic rundown. So I hope that people get out of it a stronger relationship and an ownership of their spirituality. This book is not going to tell you what to do, though. And I'm very explicit all the way through. It is not my job to tell you what to do, to give you a tradition. If you're looking for that, you know, go to a hungan, go to a, an Odorisha, go to a priest, go to whoever, if you're interested in those specific ways. But I'm not going to be the person to do that for you. I like that. And I like how you talk about in your book, it asks the question at the end, how do you relate to this particular content? How do you relate to this situation? And if anything, it's not a challenge. You, you truly want people to explore this relationship, especially like me. I'm not super familiar with my father or my father's ancestors or anything like that. Yeah. There's not really a chance of a deep dive into that, but I have got a ton of chosen family who would, I would love to look into those relationships. A ton of chosen family who have ancestors who I knew when they were on this plane of existence, who I would love to, relationship I would love to explore. And I love how in your book, it's included that ancestors don't always have to be related by blood. Absolutely. And that was a really eye-opening part for me to write, because although I had vaguely thought of ancestors in that way, it really impacted my own kind of way I show up in the world because at that time I, I didn't have, like I said, I was I'm moving back to the UK next year. That process has really been a want for the past 30 years because I see the UK as an ancestor. I talk about ancestors that are more conceptual things like the land, the sky, the sea, the cosmos. What would it be like to relate to those larger entities in our lives as ancestors. And to me, the UK, um, England, Wales, well, all of the parts of the UK are ancestors. They are my ancestors because I came from there. The, you know, there are parts of my body that were created there. My family going back generations, that's my homeland, but it's not just my homeland, it's my ancestor too. And so how then does my relationship with that place affect if I see it in that way? So, yeah, it's one of the more powerful parts of the book, in my opinion. And a lot of the endorsements that I've been getting from really seasoned practitioners in the field, I've been very, very lucky with who has been endorsed my book. They've been saying privately to me, I'm really glad that you wrote this book because, you know, after 20 years of, of working in these fields, we get it. But people in generally starting out on this, you know, if I had heard this back then, it would have made a, a huge difference to how I show up to my spirituality. So that was a huge, like I've had a couple of comments like that and I'm like, wow. So this book comes out in September. It's called yes. Ancestral Whispers. Mm -hmm. What is next? And only divulge things that you're allowed to divulge. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and poke and prod you too much on air about what's going on. What is next for Ben? What's on the horizon? I'm cautious to say anything, to be honest, but I will say, you know, after two and a half years of really hyper-focus on ancestors, in Lukumi, we have a saying, which is ancestors below us, Orisha around us, and God above us, right? 
And so I'm very much focused now in connecting with landscape and kind of folk tradition in where I am. So I think the future projects, possible future projects, will now connect with the landscape around me, the other inhabitants of landscape around me, and my relationships with them. And then perhaps in the future, then relationship with deity and relationship with divine to really have a, round, a well-rounded kind of trilogy of, of I'm actually speaking on that very subject on the use of folklore and the use of folklore theory and its relationship to landscape at Matthew Venus's the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival coming up in first week of August. So awesome. that's coming up. I'm going to be speaking on that, which is amazing because uh, like the other guests, there are huge, huge names in, in this field. So I'm really, really honored to be part of that. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm heading with my own. Yeah. A lot on my plate. <laughs> it is, and the best way to deal with it is just eat one bite at a time. Where can the people find you? Where can we find you out there in the social media universe and just on the interwebs in general? Absolutely. So I have Instagram, Facebook. My website, benstimson.com, is the best place to go. My YouTube and my Instagram and my Facebook, I, I post all sorts of stuff. I actually have a summer series podcast that I'm putting together. And you're coming on the show in a couple of weeks sometime. I can't think when it is, but it's coming up. And so I'm going to be connecting with practitioners. I've got some amazing practitioners. I just spoke with Ariana Serpentine. Next week, we have Morgan Daimler coming on. And Fist J Book is coming on. So a lot of, of other authors are going to be on there and some practitioners that I, I just need to have on the show because they're really amazing. So over the summer, people can connect with my Facebook page, Ben Stimson Author on there. And you can find all of those links on my main website. And it's definitely worth looking into, folks. The book is Ancestral Whispers by the wonderful Ben Stimson. And it comes out in September, which is also my birthday month. It's the big three nine for me. So <laughs> it might be one of the many birthday presents I buy for myself. Oh, well, I'll be honest with the timing for me. And first of all, happy early birthday. My birthday is September 13th. and Your birthday is the day after mine. I'm September. Oh, yes. We talked about that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So I I'm, it's cool. be the holiday. <laughs> Oh, Ben, it was wonderful getting to talk to you today. And again, Ancestral Whispers out in September. Ben, I look forward to talking to you again very soon. And to everybody out there, if you want to find out more about this book and more about Ben in general, they gave their information right here. And I'm going to include it in the comments for this episode. Me and Ben both want to wish you a good rest of your day. We month and year but hopefully you listen to me more than just once a year and we'll talk to you soon thank you hey thanks for sticking around i just want to take a moment to share with you something that is very near and dear to my heart and also should be near and dear to the hearts of those listening to this program if you have listened to the news lately or maybe you've seen on your socials a series of bills attempting to be passed in many states by those who would desire to censor the history of the United States, mainly the history of historically marginalized communities, namely the LGBTQ community and the communities of color. These bills would censor the contributions these communities have made and hide the evils that they have suffered throughout this nation's history. 
I ask you to take some time and please reach out to your elected officials and tell them you do not support the censorship of history. Bills that seek to ban things such as the teaching of critical race theory and don't say gay or trans bills and drag bans are dangerous, not only because they erase the past, but they are also very dangerous to the present and the future as well. Again, I ask you to partner with me in taking a stand and speaking out. And also, thanks for hanging around. podcasting easy mind garden media can get you going on your very own podcast with many years in the broadcast and audio industry mind garden media can edit fully produce and provide all the web distribution services we're podcasters too so we'll guide you every step of the way to a professional sounding podcast production for information email the mind garden media at gmail.com the mind garden media at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. 